Constructed Criticism is sponsored by Oasis Games. MTGOasis.com is the place to get cards for your next Magic event. Try them out with code CCMTG for 15% off of your first order, and use the code WouldThatBeGood for 4% off of every order. Want to support the show directly? Head on over to Patreon.com CCMTG to check out some awesome benefits and future goals for the show. Thanks for listening, and here's this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at PureMTGO.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor MTGO Traders and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 403rd episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your host of the Oscar Snipe Mason, joined by Spencer and Abe. How are you two doing tonight? I'm feeling really excited and a little bit, I'm forcing through my will into this show. I like it. It's not going to be a slap in your face if you miss this one. Exactly. Everything rocks. That's what's going on in my world. (laughs) I love that. That's so great. I'm glad everything rocks for you. That's so good. Wow, this is a timeless topical intro. That's for sure. But today, we're going to be actually doing our re-review of Kamigawa. So uh, when the set drops, we do our pick two set review, which is when we go and we pick some cards. But then around the end of its time in the limelight, we really like to go back and talk about lessons that we've learned and things that we would change, etc., from this sort of thing as like a way to kind of re-examine what we got right, what we got wrong, what we learned from it. But first, before we do that, we do need to do Always Improving as it is the main point of the show. And I believe it is my turn to go first on Always Improving. My Always Improving moment comes from really trying to expand my range even more. And there are some decks that I think are pretty good that are missing some pieces. And I like to explore those and do learn more about them so when the time comes, I'm ready. I did this uh, maybe two or three months ago with Yawgmoth in Modern, where I spent a bunch of time practicing Yawg and doing all that sort of stuff, and I feel good with Yawgmoth now, and I feel like I've done stuff to actually kind of help with that archetype and whatnot, and that feels good, and that's awesome. But an archetype that's always kind of struck me as being really close, but not quite there, is Goblins. And so I fired up my stream last Saturday night, and I played some Goblins, got my clean 5-0, and I've been playing a little more Goblins off-stream. Yeah, I just really want to understand how that deck works and what its real strengths are, because I have, like, going into it, I had thoughts of, like, okay, you have the strengths of being, like, mid-range beatdown deck, and then you have a combo finish, and I thought that's what it was. And I've realized after playing it more that another thing I underestimated was how good the toolbox is. Well, you don't have like a huge plethora of tools. You actually have just enough to put you over the line. And that's a pretty big realization for me. So when the next goblins come around, I know to jump on that. And so that's been my always improving moment. I think goblins historically, people have always kind of misunderstood it as they're like, oh, it's like an aggro deck or, oh, it's like a combo deck. And I think that the truth is, is that goblins kind of, has historically been blurred the lines for archetypes. We're in a place where there's multiple goblin decks that actually do that uh, across multiple formats to really kind of show the power of giving yourself options and decisions to be made. It's really cool when a deck can be a combo deck, an aggressive deck, and also grind you out. And I think goblins often falls into that category. I was super impressed by the card Sling Game Commander, which I had originally kind of thought was like just the combo piece that you kind of had to play that was like goodish. But after playing the deck, I didn't realize, like, oh, there's a bunch of times where you push a bunch of damage early, the board stalls in matchups, and then Sling Game comes down, and then you kind of just hold it over their head, like, 
I'm going to kill you at some point. So Goblins has been great. I really enjoyed playing it. I can't wait to play it more. Uh, it's funny. The card Fable of the Mirror Breaker reminded me I kind of wanted to play Goblins, got into all this, and I just... Do you want to know a fun boomer fact, Mason? Hit me. Uh, Go- CGA Commander was like the linchpin top end for some number of Jun decks for a little while. Eventually, mm-hmm. they kind of moved on to Broodmate Dragon, and you would see lists kind of depending on the format to play those two cards. And then the Titans got printed, and everything changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Grave Titan made Broodmate Dragon look dumb. Yeah, Slinking Commander, I don't know, makes a lot of my opponents look dumb, where it's like, oh, you weren't ready to just get drained for nine out of nowhere? What were you thinking? Also, Aether Vial sucks in current modern, and it breaks my heart. It just dies to everything. <laughs> I can't handle it. But uh, Abe, what was your always improving moment this week? Once again, my always improving moment this week comes from my, uh, my Hammer Time coaching, where this week I was actually commissioned by one of my clients to write out a matchup guide about determining, like based on the first few plays, what a deck is trying to do against Hammer, what deck that is, and how to kind of position yourself towards sideboarding and how the games are going to flow. And it was really interesting to take all of this knowledge that I've accumulated through reps and through just experience and kind of connect it down to something that uh, was helpful for someone who like needed that experience or needed the fruit of that experience to be referenced off paper, saying, oh, well, not only is this what a Rhino start looks like, the ways that you can tell you're playing as Rhinos, this is how you need to adapt your play, and really taking all of the information and synthesizing it to a way that was usable really helped me know how to verbalize it better for any of my clients or for anyone who I'm talking to about the deck, but also... Uh, really clarify, you know, when it comes to sideboarding, why I'm sideboarding in certain cards or not other cards, in what numbers, what's important based on having done all this work to kind of make it clear for like what's going on in the metagame around that. And and really just to kind of paint a picture for myself and for this, this client of mine to see what the modern format looks like through the eyes of the openings, which was really, really interesting. As we talked about a bit last week, but modern's really changed for the Hammer deck, and it's changed slightly for everyone else. You know, the, the leaving of Luris definitely has an impact on the format, but for your deck, it has changed things radically. Has it changed your way of thinking about stuff now? You're like, oh yeah, well before it was like I could play, you know, Nihil Spellbomb forever with Luris, but now I just, you know, I can't or whatever. Yeah, it definitely changes a lot about the deck building and therefore the cards I have access to or the plans I have access to in my sideboard games. It's really taught me a lot about what kind of holes are really, really present in the deck and what kind of game plans you have to move away from in favor of, like especially the grindy ones. There's a lot of matchups where previously you could use the inevitability of Luris to your advantage as kind of like a, you kind of never have to commit to putting a hammer on a creature and like crossing your fingers. But in a lot more matchups, it feels like that's more of what the games become about when you're winning, when they have a ton of interaction. Not only building your deck towards that, but making your game plans around that and making sure that the cards you're playing line up with being able to do that has been really important. And something that, you know, I kind of have had to update my priors on from like, oh yeah, you know, you can kind of take a game with Jund infinite turns because you'll have Luris and your threats are going to be bigger over time versus now it's like most of the fair decks, you just can't sit around and try to like grind forever. That's just not not an access you have anymore. Huge shout out to whoever commissioned that. It sounds like they what they were asking for was so much better than a sideboard guide. It's unbelievable. I know it is believable. It's very believable that it would that would be something helpful that you would pay for. Yeah, I mean, it was also a lot of fun to put it together. And like when I got asked to do it, I was really excited that I got to do something that was more even initially like I can give you sideboarding notes, but I'm not going to give you a cyber guide at all because 
you know, there's so many different ways you can take the deck and you're only learning about 175 right now. You know, I have to list all of the other options, all of the ways they can fit together. And I like the way that you presented it too of like, within the first few turns, what what am I expecting to see? Like, that's a sick guide to like digest and think about your deck in that way. 100%. Spencer, what's your eyes improving my mind? I was gone last week, so I'm not sure if I should talk about how my Tron list uh, went just as undefeatable as Mason's four-color list at our 3K. Because Mason didn't want to mention on the podcast. He kind of wanted all the glory for himself. But I did? Yeah. Yeah. That's. A, I don't remember uh, that. I don't remember half the stuff I said. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I, I got to play that Headhunters 3K. It, it ended up being about. It was like 2900 and something dollars. The thing that kind of was always improving for me is I really found myself back in the groove like old school magic events like we had a lot of cut to like the last four undefeated teams and they are exactly the four undefeated teams that i would have expected to be there and i like had this visceral want to win all of a sudden that like i have not had in magic in years top eight comes and uh we, it was our first time that our opponent was smart enough to say to put tron against a bad matchup instead of letting tron pick its matchup in the headhunters event and I got put against Infect in the top eight and was able to pull it out. Afterwards, uh, I went to the restroom and they, the, everybody had decided that they were ready to chop. I was on team no chops if we didn't top chop eight, but everybody was against me. I was like, oh, I'm not going to be that guy. But after we got home, I kind of was thinking about it. And my always improving moment, I think was a little bit different this time. I don't blame my teammates for wanting to go home. I, I get that we would have been playing to like pretty late had we stayed. Um, you know, four color mirrors were going to take a long time. But to me, I really wanted to beat some of these other teams that, you know, had showed up. And I think that when you're in the mindset to want to do that and to, like, pit yourself against some of the better players in your region, there's only so many opportunities that you get to play a great player in your region in top eight, right? I think my always improving moment is that I should have pushed hard on that. Like, you know what, guys? Like, I'm, I, I actually want to win this event and... Yeah, I think I, I should have pushed harder. It's something that I think has been talked about a little bit here on the show, and we mentioned it a lot during the PBDK era. Sometimes people get anxious in spots where like the stakes are relatively low or low-ish in Magic compared to some things that other people have played in them, and then they get kind of anxious because they've never been in the spot to play to win for something. And it's cool to play for those spots. You know, it's cool to be like, even you know, even in spots where like, you know, Spencer, you've played on the pro tours and so have your teammates a bunch, you know, you've played matches for thousands. Playing it for, you know, a couple hundred bucks is still, that's not jump change. You know, I don't care who you are. That's that's a good amount of money. You know, you can get a very nice dinner for that. And so I, I like that. At the end of the day, like my top eight match was only 75 bucks. The next match would have been like 200 bucks, right? I agree. I, I think you, you only get in opportunities like that so much. Like a 3K, like, it's going to be the biggest magic tournament we've had since our last 5k right in utah i'm sure my teammate would have been really mad and we would have just lost anyway i mean they sure. could, honestly they could have just both scooped right so like there's really no reason sure. for me to continue to be fair we both know Clang would never know, give that value i don't i don't Matt, know quentin enough would not have scooped, but quinn <laughs> quinn wanted to go home and like he's sure. like my big brother and i i wanted to to make big brother happy so i do think no, yeah. that there's something to be said about Wanting to go for the throats of, like, I want to be the best Magic player in Utah. Like, it's always been my goal. How do I prove that I'm the best Magic player in Utah other than just beating the crap out of, like, all the other Utah Magic players? That's the only way to do it. it it's Gotta funny. play sets in tournament to move up power rank. That's, that's how true. it works. 
That's true. Yeah, you got to have the finishes. You know, how are we going to know if MK Leo or Spargo is the best? Am I right, Spencer? Just boom. Uh, it's Spargo right now. Yeah, got to have the tournament results. You know, if you don't have the finishes, it's we're true. chopping top eight. We're not it's knowing. It's true. We're all over here thinking Mars is the best. But anyways, I know I I really love that. Locally, you know, used to be pre-COVID, it was always like you play the local store credit tournament or whatever, and everyone chops top eight. They get their plus eight dollars, and we go home. Everyone had a fun time. And uh, since COVID, I have been. No, sir. Basically, every week, a couple times I've had something going on or something like that, but I really liked it. And there, we have like some newer blood in our area. You know, ashamed enough to admit it, I was in a bad matchup for top four, and I was like, I'll split. You know, like this is a, a really bad matchup. But Ryan, one of the uh, kids who's the new blood, it was against me. He's like, No, I've never won one of these, and I've never beat you in a tournament. We're playing. And I was like, Heck yeah, let's go. And he lost. But. <laughs> <laughs> But I love that he wanted he wanted to win or whatever, and he he has never beaten me, you know, in a tournament or whatever. But he really wanted that blood, and he saw his chance, he saw his opportunity, and he was like, you know what, I'm willing to potentially lose the twenty dollars here to get this sort of experience in this moment. You should have prison rules him. You should have been like, dude, if we're playing, we're playing for all, like winner take all. Last pre-release I went to, I did that. It was for the core set, and then I realized I needed to stop for the pre-releases. <laughs> I know chopped a pre-release once, and the dude like got physically upset. He was so mad. It was right after our first podcast with Kane when I asked Kane, I was like, if you give me one piece of advice to get better at Magic the Gathering and close the, my next PTQ Top 8, what would it be? And he said, you just need to stop chopping. So I got the pre-release like three days later, and the, I'm in the finals, and the guy wants to chop. I'm like, nah, man. Like, And he like, see, everybody chops at pre-releases. Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> it was so funny. Yeah, it was, I think the, the prize rate was like five packs, three packs or whatever. If you drew, you each got four. And I was like, the only way I'm doing this is 100-0. Like, if you want, the only split I'm agreeing to is is eight nothing. And he was like, okay. <laughs> and then we jammed. Oh, I, love I got it. eight packs. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. What I've learned from this stuff. conversation is that all three of us are complete degenerates. We're just psychopaths, man. You know? Yeah, <laughs> we really are just psychopaths. It's great. I can't wait. I, I'm excited. You know, I've got uh, I've got Pittsburgh get... stories. That's gonna be so good. Torment. I have not got to tell my sick pioneer spirit story on the podcast yet, and that's a patron only story. And it's getting at me every week. We've got to do our patron only episode soon here. So look forward to that, patrons. Let's move on, though, to our main topic. We're going to do our re-review of Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. So I mentioned at the top of the show, but basically the way we do our set reviews is a little different if you joined us since we've done that. We pick two cards under four categories, so sleeper, hit, hopeful, and then we talk about the cards in this light. So that way, when you listen to other podcasts, they give you a top ten list, and they give you all these qualifiers about everything. But instead of doing that, we just have, you know, basically ten cards, and we give you the qualifiers up front. That way, you know what we're thinking about, and that way you can get the best idea for listening. It's the clearest for the listeners. So when we do these reviews, we only go over two of the topics that we have. We go over sleepers, which are cards that we feel are being underappreciated right now for some format, typically standard, but sometimes modern, pioneer, historic, things like that. And then we do our hits, which are the cards we expected to make a big impact in some format. And sometimes it's a little awkward, you know, like we're doing this not at the end of a standard's lifespan. So while Nuka Penna is the last set before rotation, I don't know if you two knew that, but Nuka Penna is our last standard set before we rotate. <laughs> Abe's eyes are so big. <laughs> We still have another year with these cards. We do get kind of a nice little feeling, and we will go over them slightly again when they do leave standard forever. Let's start off with our sleepers, and I'll just go first, and we're going to talk about my two cards. Can I talk about what we've learned, what we would change, if anything, and move forward? So 
My first looper was Light Part of the Emperor's Voice. I'm not going to read the whole card again. I expect y'all to kind of know this one. But if you don't know, it's the 2-2 that when you put an aura on it, you search your deck for another aura with a different name, and you equip it to the Light Paw. Uh, and my other one was Disruption Protocol. I will read because it ended up missing and not being a card that actually hit. And I'm going to talk about it why and everything what I've learned from it. So Disruption Protocol is blue-blue for an instant. As additional cast to cost this card, you can tap one untapped artifact you control or pay one mana and you counter-target spell. When we were doing our sleepers, my kind of thought behind this card is it is the newest cancel variant. And in standard formats, there's typically one kind of, you know, three mana counter spell that ends up seeing play. So the ceiling on this card, I still think, is the highest of all the cancel variants, you know, the three mana counter spells. But I was a little overzealous in how much I kind of thought the artifact stuff was going to end up playing out, and especially the incidental artifacts that you kind of play and they get laid behind. And the format just hasn't really broken in that way currently. So Disruption Protocol ended up being a miss. Do you feel like this card still, after getting to play with it, Summon Standard and stuff like that and seeing things play out, does this look like one of the ones that attracts to you? Or yeah, not? I think that this is still a pretty good sleeper. I've played against a couple of Tezzeret decks in standard one of them was like easily the most busted deck i've ever played against in standard i was like oh well somebody's gonna win the pro tour with this and like it never you know showed up why didn't you steal it for our patrons what are you doing you know sometimes <laughs> sometimes you're just jamming games on your phone man that's perfect you screenshot true. it i'll it's show you true. how <laughs> no i think it's still a good sleeper I, I think that one of the things that we probably didn't call out very much during the set review is that this card is much more standard only than it will ever impact other formats because the artifacts that you have laying around normally are artifacts that you're already going to be tapping with your thing other artifacts that make mana right so it needs to be like an ornithopter or like a memnite or, or something really random in order for this card to work so it doesn't really fit into like modern or pioneer the way that it fits into standard i agree with that i the card experimental synthesize and this have just not lined up in the same deck either yet and i think those two cards are kind of maybe destined to meet someday but maybe once expressive iteration has gone no, I think Spencer said it really well. I, because there's not a lot of those like Ornithopter, Memnite, whatever things you can be doing, and there's not a lot of incentive to be playing a counter spell that's really efficient. Right now, there's not a deck that really needs that so much. It's like kind of in the wrong spot, but the card definitely has the chops. Lightpaw, I, I think I was just dead on the money on. Abe even joked, like, is, is Lightpaw even a sleeper? Does it count when you single-handedly make the card win your sleeper category? Because <laughs> it feels like cheating. <laughs> Just, you know, because me and Bob and Cheese broke the metagame in Pioneer for a, day, a couple days with Lightpaw, you know, kind of showed the world. Doesn't mean it wasn't there. Doesn't mean it wasn't good. But really, the problem with this card, uh, and it's still doing great in Historic. Every time I see that deck get played in Historic, it's just like, you can do this and people aren't. It's so impressive there are things you can do that aren't this. Uh, but the Luris ban really hurt this. this I think... A little over-evaluated at first in Pioneer, and they got a little under-evaluated. And its medium was going to get found in time if Luris hadn't gotten banned. But without Luris, the aura strategy has kind of not been able to recoup yet. I I've tried actually building it and playing it in a couple different ways. Like, even trying to use stuff like Claim Fame in order to, uh, you know, kind of take that historic plane and put it here. But the payoff hasn't been strong enough. Saram just isn't a good enough analog to core spirit and answer to actually make it go over the line. It's a hit. I think it's going to stay a hit in historic as long as Luris is legal. And I think this card does have the chops that eventually in Pioneer will get something that's going to bring the aura strategy back. And this card's very, very good in those sort of shells. So 
Uh, I feel really confident about this one. I don't know if y'all have anything you want to say about the card. I've played an inappropriate amount of Historic the last couple weeks because I was doing a Historic episode over on Arena Mythicast, and I just cannot believe that Lurius is still legal in that format. It is actually unbelievable. I would understand if Lurus wasn't banned because they did the arena only thing to it, where they changed right? why numbers from the card. If they're leave it there, why not fix it? Yeah, it makes me wonder what the win rate data is on it. That That's all speculation. I don't want to go too deep into it, but it is kind of wild. Hey, was there anything you want to say about Lightpole before I pitched my, what my new sleeper pick would have been? Like you said, until the, the Lurus ban was going to be a, an entire archetype defining card for a Pioneer deck, and then Auras just kind of went the way of Pioneer's Hammer, and then it's like the Lurus combo deck that you called a shot, you went on Twitter, you posted a deck list, I made a lot of money grinding <laughs> leagues with it, you made a lot of money grinding leagues with it, Bob and she has made a lot of money grinding leagues with it. I know plenty of people who had a great time putting Messenger Speed on Lightpaw. Messenger Speed on Lightpaw was the game changer. That was the sauce. That's uh, Is Mason going to be the new Matt Kling? That every time he calls something, like it gets ends up getting banned? I put Prosperous Innkeeper into Yawgmoth, and then people started doing that, and now it's getting kind of adopted. So, Innkeeper, your days are numbered. <laughs> <laughs> I, do you guys remember that time that Matt Kling broke the format with Blue-White Eldrazi, and then Andrew got credit? So, here's the TLDR. Kling figured out the Blue-White Eldrazi deck that Andrew Tenjum, like got really popular with. Beat uh, him with it in on MDGO, and then he plays into the next SCG. Basically, he like played Kling with some other deck or whatever. It was like the day before, and then he showed up with the deck the next day. That's good deck building. Yeah, that, that, that's just smart. Learn from others. I, it's the way the humans are the way they are. My new sleeper pick, so one of the things we like to do is we have to go back and talk about something that we think would fill this role now if we had hindsight and looking back on it. And it's a little awkward. So I, I think Odawara got a lot of disrespected love like as like a maybe a one of it's proven to be really really good in certain decks like living end and modern amazing out of this world and four colors doing really well the seiju obviously when we saw that card everyone knew it had to be one of the best cards in the center if it wasn't we were in throne of eldrin 2.0 but i think shokinzan the red one didn't get a lot of love and has been surprisingly really good for me in a lot of different decks. I've played it in like mono red prison decks, I've played it in mid-range decks, control decks, prowess decks. It looked like it was just too much, but it retaught me the lesson of like getting that one spot on a land, as long as the basic count doesn't matter too much. And in some of the formats like modern with mono red strategies, they typically don't because the big punish in those formats is Blood Moon. So Shokinzan has just been such an easy one or two of in those formats. And I think the biggest part of this card is it makes colorless spirits, which I didn't fully process when I first saw it. And that in older formats has been a great, have a main deck answer to cards like Oriot Champion, stuff like that. Me and Kling were playing a league the other day and we played against the Heliod deck. And our opponent just had the main deck Oriarch champions and they attacked and we cycled a Shokin Zone. And we were like, get in there, you know? Just having that kind of out is actually so huge. I think even though that all those cards were kind of tagged to be players in some format, I think Shokin Zone really slept on it being the third best one, which I think a lot of people thought a Ganjo was gonna even be the second best one behind Baseju. And that one hasn't quite played out, but it's still very, very good, don't get me wrong. So Yeah, all those channel lines are fantastic. Yeah. Let's see. Next up, we have Spencer's Sleeper. Spencer, you want to go over your sleepers real quick? Yeah. So we have the one obligatory misread card, which is Banishing Slash. It's a white, white. Strip to one artifact, enchantment, or tap creature. Then if you control an artifact and an enchantment, not or fam, <laughs> you can create a 2-2. Two -two. So this card has seen play in standard. White is in a really interesting place. I'll be really interested to see what happens with it because the one of the reasons that I like this card so much as a sleeper is it's white-white cost was not very restrictive. But one of the things that's happened is white deck 
orcs have actually gone up on their land count to play more wandering emperors and playing legion angel legion angel is a card that i was pretty high on in mono white i don't know like a couple sets ago i think it might be in my deck box right now and it's totally understandable but in doing so they've also added crawling barons to their deck the thing is is that in addition to like adding color slants there's quite a bit of stuff happening in mono white between valorous stance the one that makes a clue march of otherworldly light there's just kind of a lot of different removal spells across the curve well this card has come in and out of standard i i couldn't i was looking at lists i only saw it in like one sideboard in the last month but i always thought that it was kind of a sleeper sideboard card i think that the format is not in a place where you need this as much like it's not like there's a ton of artifact and enchantments that you aren't able to answer in other ways right now. The fact that the deck that does play enchantments, it's not really profitable to kill those enchantments right now, made this card fall off when ruins became more popular. I don't think that that means that my sleeper was wrong, though. Like, the card saw play for the first few weeks. It was good. The format changed. It's fallen off. I think that it's a strong card that is in the right formats will continue to see play. But right now, you'd probably rather have March, in all honesty, in a lot of those spots. Not to jump the gun. I mean, someone might pick March for a hit or a sleeper later to talk about, so I don't want to talk about it too, too much in case we don't. But that is probably the card that we all missed on the most. If I were to replace has, this card, I would replace it with March. That, that card's become, like, you know, if you've played Magic yeah, recently, like, a format all-star. I, I definitely missed on March. I think I had to read March, I don't know how many times, to understand how it functioned in a lot of ways at what point is it worth it to make it cheaper it does everything that i like about this other card i'll just say it like we march should have been my sleeper and i got it wrong it is the catch-all answer that has really helped a lot of white decks go over the top in formats like modern and pioneer where before the blue white control decks or the white x decks of the world would have these holes they couldn't really fight everything over and this card covers everything but walkers and cards like fateful absence and blue white control specifically in pioneer really kind of peanut butter and jelly there's like nothing we can't stop yeah i definitely spent a lot of my time in evaluating that card thinking about oh is this better than prismatic ending in modern you know it kind of felt like that was the slot that it would have to be competing with this really taught me something that like, because that's one of the cards that I am going to pick as, as one of my sleepers uh, when we get to mine. Wow, did I forget to ask the question, would you play more than four prismatic endings if you could? Would I play six of this card? And if the answer is yes, then this card is obviously in the conversation. And the fact that it, you know, does some stuff that prismatic ending doesn't in hitting, I thought, oh, non-land, you hit creature lands, never thought about hitting Urza Saga. The Luris ban, moving things away from stuff that was like much easier to catch with just a prismatic ending, Jun Saga decks with Ren and Six and stuff like that. Uh, made Planeswalker a little less important and being instant speed a lot more important as people were fighting in different ways that you miss something every set, you know? Kamigawa also, I, I think we all kind of thought it was strong. I think I remember us mentioning like this set looks kind of good. This set overperformed. That's all I just want to say. It's like it is probably the strongest set we have on rate in all of standard. It, it is a really good set. What's your next card, Spencer? My next card, I want people to understand that this card exists. It was playing freaking historic. And I played against Cleansing Nova like three or four times this week. And fam, Farewell exists. It's white, white, four. It's a sorcery. You choose one or more. You can exile all artifacts, all creatures, all enchantments, or all graveyards. This card exists. Stop playing Cleansing Nova. 
It's wild. Those people need to play more Pioneer or listen to our podcast because this card busted on the Pioneer in blue-white. Yeah. And part of that was the Oni Cold Anvil yeah. being a big part of the metagame, but it still stayed as a one or yeah. two of. And let me tell you, the six-mana card against Phoenix, which you think would be too clunky, was back-breaking every time. The Graveyard Clause is so brutal in so many formats. This card is, it was a great sleeper pick on your part. It's a fine one of to two of in your 75. You're probably playing a clunker somewhere that this card's better than. Just trust me on this. Read the card. Look at your deck list. I I, I think this is still... It's dose. Yeah, it's still a sleeper Spencer somehow. Spencer on the shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> what a wild time. I think this one's great. I don't think we need to say anything more about that. Uh, Abe, let's hit, let's hit your two sleepers. Yeah, so uh, my sleepers were uh, Tribute to the Hirobi, which is the one in a black saga that makes rat tokens for the opponent and then flips into a 3-3, you get all the rats. That was my first one. It was kind of in this uh, concept I had for a mono black or very black-based aggressive kind of sacrifice deck that I think just hasn't found a place in the format. The card just hasn't really shown up anywhere. Uh, that I've seen outside of maybe the first few days. I think that was a pretty big miss on my part, but especially for wanting it to be a part of kind of a mono-color deck with the other tools that are around, for or like a, a very black-based aggressive shell, as opposed to the more black-based control and mid-range shells that we see with like Blood on the Snow and stuff. It requires a bigger card pool or for the card pool to be a little different, so... I've got hope for the card down the line. I think it still has a lot of power in it and a lot of chops. we got to give Abe some props because it won't be mentioned in the show. One of his hopefuls was synthesizer yeah my, i was looking over and i was like man i put so many of my so if many of my good like, points in the hopefuls and favors sleeper, you could have just dunked on the podcast so yeah what's the fun in winning all the time so <laughs> it's uh, great let me tell you <laughs> so yes i don't know if you guys have anything else to say about that card I'm just gonna move through to my second one which was generous visitor you know, I kind of had a little bit of an inkling this card might do something. I was kind of thinking that maybe with all the modify stuff, you know, it would be a good enabler, a good turn one play. And it turned out to just be one of the cards that enabled an entirely new deck in standard in the Naya Runes deck. It and uh, what is it, Kami of Transcendence, I think, yes. are, are both just oh my gosh. curry on dryads, basically. And you just pop off with uh, Runeforge Champion and Jukai Naturalist. I think that I hit the sleeper right on the head with this one. I think no one talked about this card, and it turned out to be a four of in a very competitive standard deck. People still play. People still play in Alchemy. To be fair, in the show notes, I put, why is this Goyf? When you started talking about this card in the show, I remember thinking, like, wow, yeah, this was a huge miss on my part. This card's super strong, whatever. And I built, like, a green-white enchantment runes deck or whatever. And I just wasn't smart enough to think, what if we put Showdown Skulls in our deck like they used to do? I mean, this card's just been a huge part of standard it's been like the litmus test for the format in a lot of ways like kind of like a bar you kind of have to clear and i think you nailed it you were saying earlier would you say march about the early light was your sleeper you would have chosen over the rats going back or do you have a different card in mind yeah i think i would have chosen that over two to her weeks i think a lot of people did what i did where they talked about it in terms of prismatic ending in terms of the cards that were already format defining and occupying a similar slot therefore i don't think many people talked about putting it into their decks i don't think anyone talked about how it would play in Pioneer as there is no prismatic ending in Pioneer, or it would be able to play in Standard or in Modern as additional copies. That card, I think, really got away from me, really got away from a lot of people. I would keep Old Generous Visitor up there. As I'll get to with the hits, kind of like as my feeling on the format, the set as a whole, it's hard to just have two cards for the kind of set this is, that this is. Like, there's so many cards between Sleeper and Hit that are in the set that are just so powerful at doing something. It is hard to narrow it down to two. There's there's infinite choices you can make. 
that's gonna do it for that part. So let's move on to hits. So if you haven't heard it before, hits, these are the cards that we expected to make a big impact in the format. Imagine stuff like Goblin Chain Whirler from back in the day, Sphinx's Revelation, Thrag Tusk, uh, The Wandering Emperor. These are cards that you know are going to make a big hit. And my two picks for this set were The Wandering Emperor and Lion Slash. I'll start with the Wandering Emperor because this card, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, I was high on before, I thought it was gonna be good. Having played with this card more and more and more and more, I wasn't high enough on this card. It is one of the strongest Planeswalkers we've seen in a long time. It's the way all of its pieces work when you're actually playing the game are so powerful and it adds, I think, a real element to decks and Pioneer for the control decks to actually oppose opposing Planeswalkers and to finish your game in a sort of a way of making a samurai and start going to town. So this card is just such an all-star, and, and I expect it to be a huge part of Standard for its entire time in Standard, even if like its presence forces itself out because people adapt to it so much. Yeah, I think it's hard to have a conversation about the hits in the set without bringing that card up. I think you hit the nail on the head with this choice. Wandering Emperor, we've had the conversation of like, Sam Black made the same tweet about it in Oko. You know, we've spent... I don't know, more minutes probably talking about this card than any other card since the set's release. Maybe Luris, because it got banned. I think this card is unbelievable. I was in Seth's stream the other day. It was crazy how good the card was, and I instantly put it into my mono-white deck after our podcast, posted a list with one of them. If I were to like post a new mono-white list now, like it would have even more of them. I, I just So I think that it was in the Zane's list too, wasn't it? Like it, It's just been everywhere the card has been standard in aggro mid-range control i think it's seen pioneer play in blue white now isn't it yeah yeah yeah. and, and modern, modern play modern in blue, blue white, white as well. and huge player in historic we joke about sam black you know making that tweet and sam jokes about you know the, the tweets being similar the more the days go on the more i'm convinced that it might be a top 15 planeswalker of all time card is nutso i'm closing in on like is it top Whoa. seven? That's why I'm. That's why I think it is much better than a lot of these planes. This walkers. card does uh, everything and inappropriate amount. It's got flash. That means it costs like it costs sometimes no mana. <laughs> sometimes it's free. That mana that was sometimes it's around. like three-ish mana. I cracked open my piggy bank and got a wandering emperor. Playing against this card too, I've been playing so much pioneer. It is hard to like figure things out on like, do they have deluge? Do they just have like? veto plus absence do they have the emperor like it adds a real layer to the deck of like your opponent has to respect so much of these things and pick the times they can or they can't and if they pick wrong they often lose and if they have to play into the wandering emperor she very quickly takes over the game so uh i was like a blue black truther to for, for even after like the the bannings and standard for uh for control decks it's definitely azorius or orzov or I, I'm still not sure that I'm like an Esper Truther, but this card, it's good. You got to make a big choice and not put that card in your deck. She's like a pillar or like, if not a pillar, like a very close to it. We've talked enough about her. Lion Sash is the other one. This card has done as we kind of expected. In fact, the only real downside to Lion Sash has been that Lurus has been banned. So we saw it pretty quickly get adopted into Hammer decks. And there was some talk about how good it actually even was there, but we're universally like accepted as like, hey, this is a card you should probably play at least one of. There was some talk about it with the reality chip and being contention about how many slots we can fit cards into. It's a one of in all the legacy decks. Now, that, like the, the Death in Texas deck, it's a one of in modern. Uh, I've seen a little bit of it in Pioneer from like mono whitish decks that really just like want to be a little bit more aggressive so they don't want to risk tapping out for a rip and they kind of want to hit specific cards in graveyards. But 
Lion Sash has just been pretty good. Uh, I didn't take many risks with these two shots, I would say. I don't know. Do you all have things you want to say about Lion Slash? I, I think Lion Slash is just I kind think of anybody who argued that you expected. shouldn't be playing Lion Slash and Hammer Time is out of their freaking mind. So if you're one of those people, you know, get on different bus because you know we're riding this bus to victory. <laughs> Where are we dropping, boys? It's a Fortnite like, time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. No, I'm with you. I already thought it was good. Like I think I said this in the podcast. The first time that I read this card, unfortunately, I that's probably not true. I probably just didn't comprehend because I was reading cards quickly. But like when Mace put in the chart, I was like, "This card's like sick. This is real good." After the podcast, like I got to play with it in Hammer Time, you know, because you know we we were playing Hammer Time in the Modern Challenges. I, I think Quentin even he did, he wanted okay, Shadow. I, was say, I think he wanted with Shadow. But we played Hammer Time in like five votes and leagues with it, and Line Sash, sorry, was just out of this world. And I would assume that it is probably even better. In, like, some form of legacy decks, I definitely thought about sleeving up some Stoneblade for this card. It's very good in legacy. I, I have played a weird amount of legacy since this set's been released, and I've played against Seth and Taxes a lot, and I've watched the team tournament we played two weeks ago. I, I watched a lot. Of, we played against it a lot, and we watched a lot of it, and wow, like, getting this card, and, like, even when our decks weren't, like, dedicated graveyard decks, but just, like, yeah, no, you grabbed it because you didn't want to get overcommitted on a batter scroll when you thought we had a bolt. We had the bolt. Yep, we're an STP. Yeah, nope, I can't snap cast from AGU now. No doubt. Yeah, you get to hold up Stoneforge activation, and like if I go for the snap, you put it in uncounterable, then eat the thing. No, I lose. I get it. Like, it's actually just very good. Uh, it's very berserk how strong this card is. I think if anything I have to say line Sash, it's that like the Luris ban made me like it less in hammer now because it's competing with more slots but that card's still just really good there's definitely times you're gonna want to play it and uh it definitely performs well in legacy and in any form where you can tutor it it's a it's such an insane bullet option it's hard to you say guys, that it's, uh, do you guys remember green white tron in modern mm -hmm, i remember it what were what were they playing white for path oh i don't want that okay <laughs> it, it, it was it was just part of the metagame. Just their hardest answer threats. Pretty sure Danny Cathro, as my co-host, won a PTQ with that deck. Tom of the Boss Ross popularized it on the SCG tour. I actually watched him play it recently on Todd Anderson's stream. Let's move on though to Spencer's hit. Spencer, what were your hits? I, I think you took a pretty big risk here with the first one, so I want to hear you defend. Yeah, it. I think Besaidu was was a pretty big risk. I it easily was the least talked about card going into the set. But man, brave and bold. That's yeah, why I described man, you to pick this like, one. <laughs> every green deck plays this card. I don't know how I figured it out. I'm I'm so smart. Running six with this card. I played in Tron. I played in Standard and every green deck. Just every green deck plays it. I it was a difficult choice. Well, what's your other pick then? I think yeah. Uh, so this one, <laughs> this one, uh, I almost said should be my sleeper because I think this card is still busted. Like busted. Atsushi, the Blazing Sky. It's Red, red, two for a four, four dragon spirit, legendary creature as Flample. And then when it dies, you can exile the top two cards of your library until your next turn. You must play them or you can create three treasure tokens. This card saw play in Teamer Dragons over other dragons at the beginning of the format and Gruel Dragons. You don't get to play it. I mean, you could play it in the Jun Dragons deck that still sees play. But like you kind of are maxed out on your your four drop slots because of all the the treasure stuff. Mono red I think should play this in some number over like if you ever get to four of the uh, thundering Reju or whatever it's called. I think that that's wrong because you have so many things that give haste in this mono red deck that people currently play. There's no reason to not play this card. 
because the downside of it, you know, coming into play and then getting exiled is so low. One problem that this card has hit the, the snap. snap food, thank you. But is that the word? Yeah. Uh, is is actually so. Wandering Emperor is actually really really good against this card because I'm pretty sure she exiles the tap creature, right? Oh, yeah. she yeah. does. I, My arc light phoenix does not come back. That I've had this card exiled <laughs> by Wandering Emperor and gone. Oh man, that was rough. I think this card is already seen standard play. So while I wish that it was format defining, I think that it is still going to be a two of to three of in standard after rotation. The sacrifice style decks, they're not going to always be what they are right now. And yeah, I mean, the card saw play. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think you accurately described my main problem with it is that I think that the Wandering Emperor is a huge part of the format. So all the dragons, I was actually thinking about it too. I was like, all the dragons are dies, and they put them in the same format as the Wandering Emperor. But AO's you know, got vigilance. AO's ready to go. No, but I, I think the format needs to be in a spot where like you can do that, or you need to have some sort of way, like you mentioned, like the sacrifice decks, where you can circumvent the Wandering Emperor being that sort of challenge card. But I, I do like this card. I like. I think you mentioned it, and I mentioned it on the show before. Like the Teamer Dragons deck from uh, Genoa to Praz seemed like a pretty easy one of their green red dragons or green red like mid range stuff. I'm pretty sure that like multiple. I guess that they were really Teamer Dragons lists ended up just cutting your other dragons. Just like you know, they were all in on like the synergies between this and um, Goldspan. I will be shocked if it sees a lot of play throughout its course in life, just because of how high I am on Wandering Emperor. But it's definitely possible that things break enough ways, like, like you mentioned with the sacrifice, where it's like, yeah, we have something like a Nantuku husk that circumvents that sort of blowout. But yeah, I'm curious, Abel, do you have any thoughts on uh, Atsushi? So my feelings on Atsushi kind of tie into my feelings on why my hits kind of feel like misses. If it's okay with you guys, I'm going to put my feelings on Atsushi at hold, and I'll get to it after I talk about it. I hits. don't think cool? either of your hits are misses for what it's worth. As far as they could have been, they feel a little missy. Yeah, so, so my hits were Reckoner Bankbuster, the Maze Mind Tome of Vehicles, and Tezzeret Betrayer of Flesh, which it's kind of still just standalone looking for more pieces to work with it. Well, when I think about like why I feel like Reckoner Bankbuster is not as much of a hit as some of the things that really I would think of as, as hits of this set. I mean, outside of Beseju and uh, Wandering Emperor, which I feel like are the most obvious two, Bankbuster has this kind of problem where it feels like such a normal good magic card in the same way i feel like it's sushi has this problem where it's kind of this normal good magic card you know it's just like it's good on rate it does a lot of good stuff with how many cards are just impacting the format out of enabling engines or synergies that were not previously present it's hard to just get away with playing especially in ways that aren't like super lean and, and well like like you know the reason the mono white deck is able to succeed the reason that you know, the proactive decks will succeed is because they're able to just be a clean mana curve and mana base and do these things. But like a mid-rangey card, like a Reckoner Bankbuster, kind of has struggles because it's competing with all of these synergies. I think in the same way, Atsushi has a problem where not only does it have, you know, the huge weight of the Wandering Emperor weighing down on the fact that it's a creature that has to tap to attack and you're going to want to do that. But I think that just without a synergy for a card that's just strong on rate, it's hard for that card to succeed right now around all these other cards that are enabling sweet synergies like Synthesizer and Anvil and the whole slew of the format that's available with what was introduced by Kamigawa. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but that's kind of like what my biggest feeling about this set in the hindsight is that like so much of what I was looking at was, 
you know, at times was just like, oh, is this good as a, a card in a vacuum? And all of these cards play in such dynamic ways with each other that that kind of changed the way that it all played out, you know? I'm going to go off and pop off for a second about standard. <laughs> I think standard is in a really weird place that it hasn't been in a long time. People are just not playing it. I'm a huge standards fan. If I just go to Goldfish, right? Like, I think the Celestian mid-range deck is actually popping. I think that, that deck's really strong. I think Mono White's really good. But I think that there has not been a reason to play standard. And thus, uh, the format's unexplored. I would not be shocked if had the last Pro Tour not been standard instead of Alchemy, which... I'll just go on record on the podcast saying that I think it was a huge mistake to ever do Alchemy. I think that it's a huge mistake that they tried to promote it. Nobody likes it. They should have done Standard instead. They ruined Historic with Alchemy. There's a lot of problems with it. Standard is in this place where like nobody's playing it. because nobody. And then also, the great players didn't have a reason to play it either. And so thus, it really taints the view of how we look at our set reviews, right? And I think that's a problem. Like, Tezzeret, for example, is a card that it didn't see alchemy play, but like also, you know, the cards don't even do the same thing that they were printed as in alchemy. So I I would not have been surprised if Tezzeret popped off in standard had the pro door been standard. Now it didn't happen. Right. So like, I can see why you feel like it's a miss. I've played against Tezzeret decks in standard. They've all seemed really strong. I've played a lot of colossal plow in standard. It's my go-to arena deck phone. And I have Tezzeret in my Colossal Plow deck, along with the Bankbuster. And they're heaters. They work really well together, too. So I also see how you got there with your two cards. And they go to your answer your question. Your cards, I think, are unbelievably broken in the year 2018 and are good in the year 2022. That's kind of how I feel. When I'm looking at it and it's like, this is such a new and different direction for a full set to go. There's no synergy decks in the top decks in standard. Uh, Would you count runes as a synergy deck? I, I think it's synergistic. I don't know if I'd count well, as a full synergy I mean, synergy it depends on how good you actually think runes is because it's not in the top five decks in standard on Goldfish. And so the format's not played and didn't a lot of pros bring it. I mean, like, I get Alchemy's a different format, but, like... I think that Naya Ruins is a very good deck, but I think that, like it has begun to get attacked and has already fallen off in a lot of ways. You know, I just did a deck tech on, on my brew and like, I have a very good win rate versus Naya. I like that you specifically mentioned the ruins engine pieces and the artifact engine pieces. Right. And like, those are core pieces of engine decks, but I, I don't think that standard is beyond breaking up engines right now. A card like Reckoner Bankbuster feels like a card that you would play in a deck that was like searching for something to fill a hole and play many sure. roles. And I don't think that, that's exactly sure. what's happening, right? Like that card doesn't really show yeah. up. The synergies for that card don't really exist. There's not a reason to play that over one of the many other very good options in a color. I think the fall off of Monogreen specifically hurt Bankbuster quite a bit. I have played a lot of Tezzeret Bankbuster decks. Like I, I joke about this pod deck all the time, but I do play it like, you know, on a three or four times a week during lunch or whatever. And when you have Tezzeret plus Bankbuster, you get to use your Tezzeret all the time. That card's very good if, like, you're able to make the game about card advantage and you're able to make the game about stuff, which is hard to do at times. I got to ask, would, would Kami have been, like, one of your hits then? Yeah, I was curious what Abe would think his hits are, because I think the Kami is one of the cards I think we also missed on, specifically for Standard. So I had the Kami as, like, one of my top sleepers. It's hard to say that the hits are anything but Wandering Emperor and Visaju. I think those cards are the two biggest players across the board. You know, Visaju is everywhere it can be to the point where, like, what? 
four color Omnath in modern plays like two copies in the sideboard and two copies in the main deck of this legendary land because it's uh, that card is just very obviously good and you know, there's a lot of really good contenders for cards that have made an impact because the set has made so much of an impact. Almost every card from like Uncommon Upwards had potential to show up in a constructed deck. They're all very, very good role-playing cards. We didn't even talk about um, Temio Safekeeping yet, and that card be boosted. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's so many cards that fill a role or have a job they can do that it's hard to say like, you know, well, this one was the sleeperist when the sleeper list is like, if I were to really select it out, like 50 cards right. that people fair. weren't talking about that have shown up in decks and, and been really good. So, but when it comes to hits, the cream of the crop are those two yeah. cards. They're Wandering Emperor and Vesey. Yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah, and all the other channel lands and, <laughs> and Synthesizer and Anvil. You know, there's so many great cards. Well, that thing is going to do it for our review of coming out. Hopefully that was helpful for y'all. I get to learn something that was also a little fun. I think these are kind of fun to talk about these sort of things in the bigger picture type stuff. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. Uh, the show will always be free, but if you feel like we've got something you want to give a little back, that's a great way to directly support us. And then one of the benefits of that is you get to join the Discord. We have a lot of conversation going, a lot of deck lists get shared. If I see something really cool, I try to throw it in there. If I'm trying something, I try to throw it in there. Uh, you know, if we have decks for tournaments, we always put them in there. And you also get to ask questions like this for the show. This one I think is a little interesting, and we kind of talked about it a little bit in the Discord already. It's been so I really want to hear Abe's kind of take on it. Adrian says, I heard a statement that winners win and losers lose, and I wanted to translate to magic. How does a loser turn into a winner? Uh, if you're in the Discord, you can see Spencer and I have a big, long take, and I'm sure we'll still say something here. But I'm curious, Abe, because you hadn't got around to answering that one yet. I believe summarize your positions. It was that Spencer was like, that doesn't make any sense. And Mason was like, it makes a little sense, but it's poorly worded. Yeah, I kind of got what Adrian was going for, but I kind of thought that, like like Spencer called out, I think I believe I even said, like, sounds like you hit some YouTube Sigma grind set, like, yeah, yeah, alpha yeah. male type thing or whatever. And it's like, like, there's some truth to this, but, like, eh, like this is a little weird I mean, in the way it's phrased. Here's what that sounds, <laughs> is that I am a big proponent of the power of positive thinking. And I think that when you go into something expecting to lose or with a mindset that is defeated you are not going to give your all towards winning you are going to be going in with an assumed outcome that you are going in a loser and you are going to leave a loser and whether or not you lose does not entirely stem from that it's going to be harder for you to do things like play out of your mind and see lines you maybe wouldn't have seen otherwise if you were just already consigned to losing at something if you've already resigned yourself towards defeat especially when it comes to like playing management. If you're like, yep, I always lose winning ins for top eight and you show up and you sit down and that's your attitude, that's your mentality. Do you think you're going to play your best magic? And I think the answer to that is pretty clearly no for most people. You know, you're not going to sit there and do your best and it's going to be something weighing on your mind. And that's kind of a mental game thing that is uh, important to get over is that you know, got to remind yourself every match is a new match. You know, the stakes don't actually impact the way that the game is determined as far as like the way the game plays out, you know. The game could happen in round one. It could happen in in round 10 for top eight or whatever. I think there's just a huge importance on making sure that you're coming into every match ready to play your best. And if you're not doing that, and the reason is because you're going in feeling like you're going to lose, you should ask yourself why that is and figure out a way to give yourself the confidence to go in and play your best. I don't think there's really like a winner's win and loser's lose thing. Like I am a winner, therefore I win. Like that just doesn't make any sense. 
you go out and you play your best. And if you're playing your best over time, you will win more than if you're not. I think as far as a mental edge, yeah, don't go in feeling like you're going to lose every match you play. You will not play your best because you will feel defeated. I'm going to say something to the listener that if you find yourself on a YouTube channel that says this nonsense, turn it off, go for a walk. First of all, I love Adrian. I think Adrian's just like a rock star. Adrian recently reached out to me for like something kind of having career changes and stuff. I'm going to approach it from that perspective because I think it's really important. I make way more money than I ever expected to make in my life. I am going to make way more money than I ever expected to make in my life. And if you asked people who have this type of mentality, they would call me really weird, mean names. And this mentality of winners win and losers lose is not true. I love Wolf of Wall Street as much as the next guy. I think that movie's <laughs> gas. But That's the movie I was thinking of when he said the, that. I knew there was the one. Thing. Here's the thing. Is that at the end of the day, Jordan Belford goes to jail. Spoiler, he loses. So was he a winner or was he a loser? The mentality piece, right, is what's important here. Is that you are either setting yourself up for failure or you are setting yourself up for success. We haven't mentioned Smash on the podcast yet, so I have to I have to do it. My reference is just totally thrown under the bus. I understand. No, I get it. In the past week and a half, I've played Smash against Mason a couple of times, and we had I had two very different uh, experiences with kind of this mentality piece. One of them was the first game I played against Mason after Mason hadn't played Smash in a while, and I went to literally my best character. I played Charizard, and just absolutely obliterated him. Three stock, not close, obliterated him. Then the literally a few nights ago. Mason pulls out one of his favorite characters, Captain Falcon. I'm a huge advantage in the game. Mason gets into my head, throwing up bees, and I just collapse. It was a game later, Spencer. It was the next game. It wasn't a few days later. You beat me, and then I pull out the Falcon the next game. That was all one night, baby. Oh, I mean, that is also true. You did beat me with the Falcon the next game. And <laughs> I also wasn't playing Charizard, yeah. though, just to be clear. I don't lose 2-0, baby. I get back-to-back. Back. I get mine. <laughs> as much as Mason wants to, like... Like, Mason got into my head and made me feel like a loser. Like, I can't figure out how to beat this. Mason's laughing on the show, but, like, legitimately... I know you don't mean to sound like I was, like, shit-talking you or whatever. I know that's no, not what he you got in my head. No, he yeah, made he me feel like a loser. He was up Mason, all the time. Mason says a lot of stuff, so, like, he can't get in my head by talking. <laughs> There's not a world in which him constantly command-grabbing me doesn't bug me. It makes me have to change my playstyle a lot. <laughs> in the world of magic, in the world of, like, life, right? If you're already upset the first time that something happens or before it even happens, then you're going to fail. You're not going to fail, but you're going to set yourself up to fail. As cool as those people sound that say stuff like this, right? It's just not true. Being process oriented and then results driven so that you're creating the correct process for yourself yields far better results than people who are just like, nah, I'm a winner. 1000% agree with you. I think that if you're looking for something, by the way, Adrian, to a, a good mental perspective on winning and losing, I would go read Stuck in the Middle with Bruce. I think it's still somewhere in the Star City Games archives. Best article on mental game of all time. It just talks about how people sometimes want to lose and allow themselves to lose, even though they actually want to win. But there's a, there's a thing inside them that wants to lose because it's easier to lose than to win. 
in that way, I think it's productive to be like, I'm not going to go in in a Dude, losing this... mindset. But winners win and losers lose is the biggest yeah, crock it's... of garbage. <laughs> it's so bad. Yeah, I, I want to touch on what you just said, and then I'll pitch to you, Mason, really quick. But like what you just said of like people say they want to win, but the truth is think of all of those freaking PPTQ, PTQ grinders that like get to top eight and they have an excuse for why they lost. That's the whole point of this show is to improve in, in the process. Winners don't win and losers don't – like it's tr- technically true. Like the winner won and the loser lost. But it's not like every time you lose a match, you're a loser. Or every time you win a match, you're a winner. Or every time you don't win a tournament, you're a loser. Like that's nonsensical. The way to take it and not just like – because I think it's pretty easy for us to just kind of like daily show it and we just point out how stupid it is. But like if there's anything we could take from it – it's like if you want to do well and improve at magic over time and, and get better, you do need to be having this mindset of wanting to do that. And so when it comes to like a mindset of wanting to improve any process or results, however Spencer said it, I'm dyslexic. I'm screwing it up. That's my excuse. Driven. Thank you. Okay. Uh, if you want to do it like that, that makes a lot of sense and it's really good. But you should focus on doing that sort of thing and care less about like if you won or lost a tournament and care much more about things like – did I cyborg correctly? Did I assess the matchup correctly? Did I do this? Did I do that? Focus on all these other things that are bigger factors because that's what the people like PV and Sam, Seth Manfield, I don't know why I said, I was about to say Sam Manfield, Seth Black, Sam Man, <laughs> Seth Manfield, these people, that's what they do. You should focus on that sort of stuff instead. That would be my advice. Like if you want to take this and make it magic related without it just being some deep YouTube rabbit hole stuff, just like focus on the things that matter, focus on things you can control, look at, and take it one step at a time, and do play to win and do these sort of things, and don't let yourself get away and get, let yourself off easy in spots where you shouldn't be. You know, there are definitely times where you're gonna be like, ah, oh, but I just hadn't mistap my mana. It's like, well, you, you have the ability to check it. You know, like you probably weren't rushing in every single spot. You done this wrong. Hold yourself accountable on that sort of thing. So we have our little game show from last week. So last week we had a question of what was our favorite decks in standard and our least favorite decks in standard. So Spencer was gone. Uh, he had some stuff going on. And so we made a little game of it. And we said, if you can guess Spencer's favorite deck and least favorite deck, we're going to write. And Abe and I also guessed on the show. So Spencer, the time's come. What is your favorite standard deck and your least favorite standard deck of all time? I really loved listening to you two talk about it. I loved your insight into me. And I'm a little disappointed that the listeners uh, didn't try to win that hundred bucks because Mason almost got it right. Like straight up, had the last couple years of magic not happened, Mason would have gotten it right. And we're going to start with my least favorite deck of all time. And it's actually not particularly close. My least favorite deck of all time is Blue Black Rogues. Uh, I think that it was one of, if not the most miserable decks to ever play against my view could be tainted because I played almost a hundred. I mean, almost everybody played a hundred percent of their magic on arena while that deck was out. Right. So I can't have imagined playing against that deck in paper for what it's worth. I'm almost glad we didn't have to. Honestly, it could be like arena ladder. I was doing mythic cast when this deck was like all the time when this deck was good. So I was getting mythic every, all the time. It wasn't good against the best deck in the format. The play patterns were terrible and the games lasted forever and then, like, for some reason, they just had the best card in standard. Drown in yeah, the Lock. Yeah, Drown Lock is just, like, story. so easily the best card in that deck. It wasn't even remotely close. That deck was miserable. 
my favorite deck neither of you got, but it's not really your fault. <laughs> it was actually Team of Black in the four-color format. The Savage Knuckleblade Murderous Cut deck. That's a deep cut for that format, so, too. That's like that's so beyond a deck that yeah. people regularly so, played. That's... So there's a reason, though, and you guys got pretty close. Like, I love the deck that I qualified for the Pro Tour with. It was before that. It was the same, kind of like the same deck. But what happened is, is after I qualified for the Pro Tour... Abzan Raptor and Den Protector came out. Adding those to the teamer deck and then adding black because it was free for like murderous cut and stuff like that fixed a lot of the problems for my deck. So yeah, that's my favorite deck of all time. To be fair, Twin Pod was my favorite deck before that deck and neither of you guys got that. And that deck was hot. It was one of the listeners commented. Oh, yeah. Their favorite deck was Twin Pod. No, they, they said Kiki theirs. Pod. Those are not the same deck. Yeah, but Kiki Pod didn't exist. They meant Twin No, he said he, the, you got to read the YouTube comments. He K- meant, Kiki Pod he was, was a deck, wasn't it? He said favorite standard deck was Kiki yeah. Pod, not a deck, because Kiki Jiki was not legal at the same time as Birthing Pod. No, no, he was. He, it and then he said, he said, "I guess you can tell why I played in modern." Oh, I believe he, that he messed up. I see. I misunderstood what he was saying. I also know him. He's my good friend. He Nate. did play Twin so. Pod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, was, I draft with him like twice a week. That's I, so I know funny. Him very well. It's like you gotta read the YouTube comments. And then it well, was I like, thought he was saying. I thought he was saying. Oh, I meant. I thought he was saying. Oh, I misunderstood the question. Not. Oh, I meant Twin Pod. No, no, no. No, Twin. No. I, twin Pod. I was also, gas. He meant Twin Pod, which was his favorite. I know he likes Pod decks, but I didn't think twin, that'd be Twin Pod was unbelievable. Pod. That was a Lotus Cobra deck. First of all, sick Lotus Cobra deck. The that was before I played anything that resembled magic in my FNM. Man, I might change my answer. Maybe Twin Pod is still my favorite standard deck of all time. <laughs> I was going to say that I thought for sure Kiki Jiki was in the set right before Birthing Pod. Yeah, those cards were together. <laughs> Let me, I, I didn't Just play back then, but in my apart. head, they're like, in my head, it goes Zendikar, Kamigawa, Phyrexia. And that's clearly just not the case. You know what the reason you think that is, for what it's worth? It's because Scars of Mirrodin and Mirrodin are the sets by by Zendikar and Kamigawa. Yeah, Kamigawa is closer to original Ravnica than it is to Zendikar. Yeah, so... What? Yeah, so so Kamigawa came out after Mirrodin, but... Scars of Mirrodin is the block with Birthing Pod. Mason's doing the Squidward future thing. He's so confused. Can we talk it's about how Nuka Pena, though, is the last set before rotation? And that will do it for this week's episode. <laughs> Nobody won $100. Sad, sad day. Four Titan, four Summers packed. <laughs> I won some rounds. <laughs> that's good. That's better than a lot of people's first standard open. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the show. If someone wants to find you, Abe, where can they go? They can find me at twitter.com slash more nothings. DM's still open to schedule Hammer Time coaching sessions if you're someone interested in exploring all the wonderful things Glosses Hammer. And also uh, Tree of Tales MTG, my blog project, is always accepting submissions of your stories about your local tournaments, large tournaments, any tournament reports you want to write up. Gladly help you get that published somewhere. Um, keep the written history of Magic alive. Spencer, what about you? Two other podcasts every other week. I do Meet Nerd with West Singleton. We just did a podcast with former host of this show, Matt Kling, about our Meet Nerd and Smash Brothers. And then I do a show with uh, Michaela Downs every other week as well called Arena Mythicast. It's a podcast about helping people get mythic. Uh, our next episode, we are recording this Saturday. We'll be talking about the 
the LP announcement. Yeah, it should be fun. We're also going to be doing that on this show. I was about to say, yeah. There's nothing that I can do about it other than do it twice. It affects Arena just as much as it affects this show. So the best place that you can find me right now is actually making content on our Constructor Cruises YouTube channel. I want to quickly plug something. I loved the messages I got this week about my Green Black uh, Bloodstorm deck. Very much appreciated. As we say every week on the show, if what you're saying to me can be said publicly, I would really appreciate it as a comment on YouTube. It helps more for the overall brand of the show. Like It helps common knowledge. It helps everyone when you do that. Those personal messages, they mean the entire world to me. So like, I'm not asking you to stop that feed my ego guys but uh if, if they can be said publicly i would appreciate them as youtube comment you can find me each and every week over at card kingdom talking about something this week normally it's on thursdays you can find me on friday you're gonna have uh the reactions to the organized play announcement as i was gonna also mention we mentioned here we're gonna record our reactions to the op announcement as soon as we possibly can which means if you're listening to this episode on the week-to-week basis you should expect next week's episode a little early so, you know, maybe check out Tuesday or Wednesday or something like that. We're going to try and get it done, have it up to you. No promises because we are still trying to fit in our editor's schedule and everything. But it'll be done early. So in theory, we'll get it up early. Check it out for that. We're going to be talking about the organized play announcement and everything in there. It should be a big one. And if you're listening to this podcast, you should already know it. So get ready for us to talk about it in your ears next this week. This podcast is going to come out the day of the OB announcement, which is kind of weird to think about. Yeah, we should maybe try to release on Wednesday. Uh, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Constructed Chrism. We'll see you back next week for another episode of CCMTG.